Hello, you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. And on today's episode, we are talking about the fourth book in the series that restarted the whole series, The Cat Who Saw Red. When was this one published? This was published in 1986. And the one we just read was published when? 1968. So the obvious question, why the 20-year break? There are many possible reasons, but the one stated in her Washington Post obituary by her second husband, Earl Bettinger, is that they wanted her to introduce sex and violence into her stories, and my wife wouldn't have any part of that, so she quit writing. Okay, maybe that's the reason that she gave Earl, but based on the dates, they didn't marry until after she'd left her position with the Detroit Free Press in 1978-ish, so he was likely not in the picture 10 years earlier when she actually stopped writing. This is also one of the only award-nominated books out of the series, although most of her books received some critical praise mm-hmm. and usually ended up, um, if not super high on the bestseller list, pretty consistently in the top 20 every time she released a book. What award was it up for? Uh, it was nominated as Best Original Paperback for both an Anthony, an Anthony Award, which is a literary mystery award, and an Edgar Award. Oh, which is, Edgar's. Yeah, the Mystery Writers of America's. Mm-hmm. Hilariously, in both cases, it lost to a novel titled The Junkyard Dog by Robert Wright Campbell. Oh, the dog beats cat. Dog beats cat. Oh, shame. Shame, shame, shame. (laughs) So this one now, uh, since we've jumped ahead, is there a change in the audiobook author? Nope. It's uh, well, not the certainly not the author. The, the author, the, no, of course. But the not, reader no. uh, has the reader, yes, the narrator is still. Yep, George, still George Goodall, still legally only available on CDs. Now, in this, since we're going to be uh, jumping ahead, the synopsis, we're still in the Metropolis, correct? Mm-hmm. We are still in Metropolis with no name, and it should be noted that for Quill, no time has passed. Really? While the world may have changed ever so slightly, we're picking up almost exactly where we finished off in The Cat Who Turned On and Off. Interesting. So it's not a, a jump, like, no, he's, for Quill, it's the exact yeah, same. Yeah, he's not going from age 40 to age 60. He's still mid-40s. Well, especially considering how long they continue on after this, I think that's yes. probably a wise move. And again, this, and this is really where she starts to establish that while Quill doesn't really age i mean he moves he moves somewhere somewhere around the middle section he moves from being in his mid 40s uh where he is in this book to his mid 50s um in uh in some of the later books but that's about all that she does to acknowledge the passing of time so he's kenneth from 30 rock where he could be immortal (laughs) exactly (laughs) well let's jump right into the synopsis of this one righty so this book starts off with some wonderfully grand irony quill is told that he needs to lose 30 pounds by his cat's vet no less (laughs) um Apparently, reverse Quill. Garfield situation. Yes. Well, apparently, while they were chasing Coco around to try and get him to take a pill and mm-hmm. uh, to take a pill, Quill ended up panting a little bit more than he thought he than the vet thought he should be. So it was recommended that he lose some weight. However, then he arrives at the Daily Fluxion only to find that his new assignment is the Fluxion's new fine food and wine oh. author. So he's gone from interior design mm-hmm. to antiques. Yep. And beforehand, what was the very first? Oh one no, was? you had uh, you you had excuse me, you had fine art, fine arts, interior design. The antique was something he the antiques were something he did on his own to try and win some prize money, which and he did. And now we're in. And fine now dining. we mind, moved moved on to fine dining. <laughs> now he still doesn't drink, 
Um, this is not considered a problem, apparently. Uh, he's bemoaning this while he's sitting at dinner with Arch Riker and your favorite character, yeah, Odd Bunsen. Odd Bunsen's back. Yeah, he doesn't get much, but he, he's there at least a little he's, bit. So long as he's there, that's all that yes, matters. He's the... So there, you know, so he, as, as tends to happen with old friends and, and good friends, they're, they're ragging him about, you know, his new assignment, mm-hmm. his, uh, the way he chose to spend his prize money or he's spending his prize money because we're, like I said, we're picking up pretty much right after. And this is the, the prize money up. from the antique, uh, from the antique stories, the antique story. Yes, yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. Um, so the biggest thing that Arch is, uh, teasing him about is the fact that he's, apparently sent a couple hundred dollars to his ex-wife Miriam, which is the first time we learned her name and the cat who could read backwards where she's where she's mentioned, she's really just noted as Quill's ex-wife. So her name is Her name Miriam. is Miriam. All right. And this makes Arch call him a sucker because apparently Miriam's family is very wealthy. Yeah. Um, however, Miriam is also sick with an unknown illness. So oh. this obviously plays on Quill's savior complex. Blah, blah, blah. Moving on. So with this new assignment, Quill, of course, gets to uh, dine out at the fanciest establishments in, in Metropolis of No Name. Um, so he immediately... Yeah, Shaklee Fright. So he immediately tries to get Mary Duckworth again, picking up right where we left off, uh, yes. to go to dinner with him at the city's most expensive restaurant. But she tells him, I'm sorry, I'm leaving for the Caribbean. <laughs> Just, in the just morning. Just like that. Just like that. And she suggests that he take her place at a gourmet club meeting at the house of noted attorney and gourmet cook, because of course he is, Robert Maus. That's Robert, Robert Maus. Maus. That's the German pronunciation M-A-U-S. And his home, where the gourmet club meets, is known as Maus House. Oh, of course, because of course it is. Now, a question. Do we have a name for the fanciest restaurant in Chiclete? Oh, we do. We're going to get there. Oh, good. Good, yes. good, good. I was oh, yes. hoping so. No, we do get there. So... So long, Mary Duckworth, which is good because at dinner he runs into Joy Graham, nay Wheatley, who is Quill's former fiancé. So we've met his ex-wife and now his ex-fiancé. His ex-fiancé that he met before he married Miriam. Quill. Yeah, my I goodness, know. we're getting to know quite a bit about you this Yes, time. well, Joy apparently ran away before they actually got married. She just disappeared. Mm. Um, and she later became a potter and managed to marry another potter. And now they live at Mouse House, which is a former pottery. Um <laughs> And they are the resident artists there, although her husband, Dan, has a ruined tendon in his thumb, so he can't actually throw pots traditionally where you'd see them on a wheel. On a kiln. Uh, um, no, no, it's the kiln. You, you Kiln is where you fire it. You yes. fire it. That's right. But so the, the pot, right. pot's on the wheel. Um, so usually you would use the thumb as your main tool. Right, 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 right. Um, so Dan does slab pots, which is rolling them out and putting them together. Mm. Um, Quill mishears that as slob pots, <laughs> which becomes a point of contention. Slob anyway. pots. <laughs> yes, slob pots. So the house is a former pottery. Um, so the, all all of the equipment is is already there. Pottery, um, mouse, pottery yes, house. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a former pottery with a tragic story from the previous generation. The, uh, how, the pottery was originally run by the Penman family, which is the same family that ran the art school, or runs the art school, I guess, and the cat who could read backwards because the art school is still very much there. Right, 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 right. That's right. Ah. And Mouse is trying to revive the old function of the pottery to fulfill a clause in his inherited ownership of the building. Long story has to do with his, with his deceased wife. So the house fell to him. He's, got, he's gotten stuck with it. Um, but as a clause, he has to open the house to artists. So he's got the artists in the pottery, and mm-hmm. then the rest of the house is filled with people in the food industry. Oh. Um, and dinner with uh, Mr. Mouse is so good that when Quill is offered an empty apartment, he packs up the cats, says goodbye to Mrs. Cobb in Junktown, and moves into Mouse House. So this is the fourth time he's had to move now. Yep. 
Hopefully this is going to be among the last. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Oh, goodness. No, he moves a lot. Um, so his first interview, he decides, is actually Robert Mouse himself, who he mm-hmm. then takes to dinner at the most expensive restaurant in the city, the Toledo Tombs. The, t- the Toledo Tombs. Yes, it's underground in a former sewer. Because that's where you want to have a fancy, fancy dinner. This is a Pat and Oswalt joke about eccentric <laughs> chefs come to life, I swear. Oh, and it gets worse because Quill gets yelled at by the head chef for not eating more of his dinner because, of course, he's on a diet. So he's having... And he can. He has to lose 30 pounds. Yeah, so he's having like three bites of everything, very mm. much enjoying it. The head chef storms out and demands why, to know why his, why his cooking isn't good enough for him. And Quill says, well, I would like to take the rest of the lamb home to the cats. Oh. Yeah, the chef was not happy with no, that one. No, 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 no. That is not a not something you want to say to a gourmet chef. So Quill has moved into Mouse House and he meets his neighbors, which we have Charlotte Roop, who's an elderly prudish lady <laughs> with a crossword puzzle addiction and far too much affection for her bosses who run a chain of restaurants called the Hash House. Yes, we ate at the Hash House, didn't we? No, Hash House of Go-Go. Different hash thing. House of, oh, different name. This, the Hash <laughs> House of Go-Go is the Guy Fieri version. Exactly. We've got Hexie Rice who is a food jingle writer who eats too much, wears clothes too tight, and is too loud with hair too high. you got to love the description. Hixie Rice. Hixie Rice. So they, a food jingle, they're the ones who wrote some, I'm trying to think of a famous food jingle now, and I'm, I'm coming Where's up the beef? Um, well, where's the beef? Uh, plot, plot, no, that's Alka-Seltzer. It's not food. Anyway, plot, plot, this anyway, is. Yeah. Moving on, Hixie Rice. Hey, Sorry. We've got Hixie Rice. Um, we've got Max Sorrel, who owns a restaurant called The Golden Lamb Chop. All right. Rosemary Whiting, who sells shutter per Mr. Mouse, health food. <laughs> That's literally how it's written. Well, now let's, you, you said this is in the 80s. That was a craze. Oh, yeah. A big, big health food yes, craze. Yes, So, so that, Rosemary that... sells health food. And then we have the Gramps. And the house is maintained by the housekeeper, Mrs. Marin, and William the houseboy. Impudent, occasionally useful. <laughs> I would like that to be on my tombstone. <laughs> I think it's a good one. So all is not well in the world of the grand marriage, however, and after a big blow up around the dinner table over Joy's missing cat um, and Dan's unwillingness to let Quill look at any of the pottery ahead of their joint show in a few weeks, uh, Joy ends up going to Quill's apartment and confessing that she'd leave if she could afford the divorce. Hmm. Um, Quill's savior instinct is again activated and he lends Joy the majority of his remaining prize money. And that's the last we see of Joy. Is she going to be... Oh, I will find out. Yes. I'll find out with everyone else. <laughs> oh, we also should probably say one thing we have not done before, which is spoilers, everyone. Yes, sorry. Um, usually usually <laughs> I say that at the beginning we got talking about the, the break. But yes, there are spoilers. Um, but again, this book is close to 40 years old. Sorry, dear. I don't need to remind you of that. Well, it's quite all right. It's it, This is on the... Uh, it's getting closer to the other end of 40, not the 35 end. But anyway, continue <laughs> anyway, on. Yeah. 40, 40 years later, it's spoilers ahead. Yes. But just so you know. So, anyway, the next morning, Dan reports to the rest of the house that Joy ran off in the middle of the night and not for the first time. Oh, no. Quill's mustache, however, is tingling because he distinctly <laughs> heard a woman scream in the early hours. Dan claims that the scream was because Joy caught her hair. She is described, of course, with having a long, curtainy dark hair. Curtainy. Curtainy dark hair. So it billows and yes. needs to be dusted. Something like that. <laughs> she caught her hair in the electric potter's wheel and he threw the switch Ooh. to save her, after which she ran off. But Quill and everyone else around the table thinks that's a little, that's frankly a load of bullshit because everyone knows she only used the manual kick wheel. So the story of throwing a switch isn't holding water and everyone's getting a little bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. Then at lunch that day, Quill confesses to Arch that he lent Joy the money before he before she left, and Arch tries to convince him to stop payment on the check because, of course, you sap 
you loaned this woman money. She ran, She used it to finance uh, her divorce, running away. And she's, exactly. getting out of, she's getting out of Dodge. Later, referring from a review for one of the restaurants, I believe it was actually reviewing the Golden Land Shop, mm-hmm. um, Quill accidentally stumbles ac- upon Hixie Rice and Dan Graham having an argument. And in pity, he invites her into he invites her later to a cheese tasting. The commentary about how he prefers to bring more svelte and stylish women as his dates are unfair and unnecessary. Hixie's actually a lot of fun. Afterwards, so Hixie's the one who said that's unnecessary. No, that's me. That, oh, that's editorial okay. commentary from oh, me. I thought it was Hixie standing up and saying, yeah sadly no this is there there is you you get to see quill's thought bubble about how he does prefer to bring more svelte and stylish women as his dates so the low-key misogyny is still a thing oh still a thing afterwards in a drunken sadness hixie reveals that she and graham have been having an affair and are supposed to run away to paris after the pottery show oh my and she's even been learning french which of course she communicates to coco there's lots of bonjour monsieur coco it's very cute <laughs> and does coco react to this meow <laughs> not le meow no yow with an x on the end <laughs> yes that's actually how okay, it's, spelled out. That's, it's spelled out that's very fancy very french exactly quill is a good listener and for a man-hungry marriage-minded woman she never seems to really go for quill and it's the first incident that he might actually be making a female friend um which is kind of nice and it's very supportive he returns her, he takes her back to her own apartment he comes back to find that Coco is doing a very strange, almost dance around a red book called The Ancient Art of Potting. Hmm. Now, this is the second time that Quill has seen this particular dance, and the first was around the body of George Bonifield Mount Clemens III. In, from the first book. From the very first book. And from here on out, this is referred to as Coco's death dance. Oh. In the meantime, however, the cats are loving their new home. It's got big windows. There's a bearskin rug. Coco gets to do walks <laughs> along the river. Yum Yum never warms up to the harness and the leash. There's a hilarious scene where Quill attempts to feed them store-bought cat food while he dines at the Toledo Tombs. Ooh. And this goes about as well as can be expected. Oh, Fortunately, so. Quill brings home his leftover lamb and so is forgiven. <laughs> uh, Rosemary, one of the other tenants, uh, very kindly brings the cat a skein of yarn, which they immediately turn into a spider's web while Quill is out, Leading Quill to hide the skein, although he felt kind of bad because he thought it was a pretty artistic artistic uh, endeavor for the cats. <laughs> it's a nice. It was a nice gesture of Rosemary's, though. And Coco, by the way, is also learning to type because we still have that typewriter. Ah, there's right. a lot of symbolism in his typing, such as the old symbol for the end of a newspaper story, which is thirty, um, which hmm. became the old symbol when. You couldn't send a lot all at once, so you'd have to send stories in batches, um, and that was how you would signal that you would reach the end of the story. You would type 30 at the bottom of the page. Interesting. Did they, is there a reason why it was specifically 30? I'm not... I, I couldn't find an actual reason. I just hmm. found the, this is what they did. Back um, in the day. Back in the day. Um there is a, a quote comes home to find it to find thirty one time. He comes home to find dog typed one time, mm-hmm. and PB, which by the way is the chemical symbol for lead. Um, this will come into play later. Okay, and only one of these was not typed by Coco. Uh, and I'm sure I'm guessing that's going to come into play Indeed uh, later it does. on as well too. Turns out it was actually typed by the houseboy William, who's a not very successful art student and kind of a wannabe sleuth. So Quill takes him to a restaurant in Junktown called the Petrified Bagel. <laughs> to see if he can learn any more information about the Graham's mouse house or really anything. And instead, they just have a really, really terrible meal. Well, um, it's probably hard as a rock, I'm Exactly. So to make up for it, William offers to take Quill to the farmer's market with uh, Mr. Mouse in the morning. Mm. Um, but so Quill gets up at the crack of dawn and William doesn't show. 
which is a little bit odd, uh, although Mouse kind of goes, yeah, him showing up on time is kind of, would, would have been more of a surprise. Um, so Quill and Mouse head to the farmer's market where there's apparently a fortune teller. <laughs> she tells Quill that he's going to take a long trip and inherit money after receiving a letter from a sick relative. As for Joy, she tells him, lots of water, you know, like everybody wet. Quill's mustache again starts tingling, and he starts to see ghosts of joy everywhere, including the fortune teller. Um, so I don't know quite what's going on in Quill's head at this point, but he's he's seeing joy everywhere he turns. Quill is then sent out of town to judge a cake contest, um, but as he doesn't have a car, he's joined by Rosemary for the overnight. Charlotte Roop does not approve. Well, and the two form a nice connection. She's actually quite a bit older than she looks. She's a grandmother with a 12-year-old grandson. Her hmm. other grandchildren are in college. Um, so, And she's quite a bit more steady than Quill's previous flings. Unfortunately, when they return, the cats are missing. Coco and Yum Yum are Coco missing? Coco and Yum Yum are missing. And Mrs. Marin, who's been asked to feed them for the overnight, she claims they're dead. Oh, God. So, fortunately, this turns out to be a false alarm. Well, obviously. Thank goodness. There's many uh, books after there's this. There's many books be- <laughs> after that, unless they were in memoriams. Um, oh, God. Yeah, wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> so, it turns out to be a false alarm. They snuck outside, and the housekeeper had a post-traumatic stress incident. Apparently, her grandson had disappeared from the pottery and fallen in the river, and it took them two weeks to find his body. She oh. never really got over it and thought that it would be worse if he just thought that they were missing. So, she told Quill the cats were dead because it was worse not to know in her mind. Oof. Really kind of a traumatic scene, um, and poor Mrs. Marin. It's, it, oh, you, your heart just bleeds for her. I can imagine. Yeah, being in that position, that's yeah. just... The cats yeah. are fine. The quill starts, quill starts a brushing routine with them to help avoid hairballs, and again, all is forgiven. Oh, good. It should be mentioned, they finally come up with a name for Quill's new column, and it is Prandial Musings. With prandial the- meaning relating to a meal, and yes, I did have to look that up, because it literally just means to have a meal. So meal musings. So meal musings, yes. But apparently his new photograph, taken by Odd Bunsen, of course, is a big hit for whatever reason. It's, uh, is it a photograph of him? It's a photograph of him. Um, and Arch comments that he actually looks pleasant. It, it's actually pleasant to look at versus a bellyaching basset hound wow. in his old photo. Good Lord. Yes. Mo- Got to wonder what mood he was in when he took that first one. So William is still missing by the way, and Quill is contacted by mm-hmm. uh, William's girlfriend, who is understandably concerned. And she reveals that she that William saw Dan misfiring a kiln, which he should have resulted in him losing a slew of pots, not preparing for a show. This is The show is still happening despite Joy disappearing. Hmm. Mrs. Marin then tells Quill that she saw Dan coming down the fire escape after Joy supposedly left with a large and heavy sack. So oh. suspicions are continuing to be aroused. It just keeps building. It just keeps building. Dan Graham, meanwhile, is still preparing for the show preview, pushing out the boat with champagne, hors d'oeuvres, and every, et cetera, to showcase his work and Joy's, which he remembers as an afterthought. He tells <laughs> the house that Joy sent him a postcard asking him to ship her summer clothes to Miami, so Dan is bravely going on with the show without her. Quill is wondering where Dan got the money to throw this shindig, and yes, LJB uses the word shindig frequently. That's not my ad- that's not my addition. <laughs> and he leverages his terrible time out of town um, to get uh, being sent to that cake contest did not go over well. Um, mm-hmm. He leverages that to get Odd Bunsen to come to the pottery and take pictures of Dan Graham's pottery and show. Mm-hmm. because Coco has revealed a peephole from Quill's apartment into the pottery. And Quill spies on Dan pulling pots out in these brilliant blues, greens, and reds, which Dan later describes as his living glaze. Bunsen arrives for dinner and pictures, and it's demonstration dinner night. Charlotte makes a salad with love. Rosemary makes a healthy soup. Max makes a steak. 
And Hixie, Hixie sets her hair on fire trying to make dessert. Ooh. Cherry's Jubilee. It's not pretty. Fortunately, she has lots of wigs. So when she uh, when she goes out next, she's just wearing a wig. So just Myra Rose in the kitchen. Exactly. But after all that drama, Bunsen and Quill head to the pottery with Dan and Coco in tow. They do some poking around. Dan mm-hmm. shows off his living glaze and talks about how Joy was jealous of his discovery, which might be why she left. But Quill finds a notebook in Joy's very distinctive handwriting that clearly indicates that she, and not Dan, is actually the inventor of the living glaze. Mm. They describe her handwriting as looking like interconnected series a series of o's and w's together it's it, it's lots of looping handwriting and it's very artistic and a little bit hard to read and very uh, distinctive so very distinctive it, yes. so if you find um so finding her handwriting you know it's joy's handwriting also the quill and uh and bunsen also stumble upon joy's hairbrush and suitcases full of her clothes that dan of course still claims he's shipping to her in miami hmm. later quill looks to the people to see dan feeding joy's clothes into the kiln Oh. So, again, the mustache the mustache is it tingling. Is, it is a buzzing right it now. It is a buzzing. And it, it continues to get worse because Quill now finds out that his bank account has been overdrawn by a check for seventeen fifty, not the 750 that he wrote for Joy. Oh, wow. Um, fortunately, he's able to get the bank to cancel that part of the check. Mm-hmm. Um, and he then, thinking back on what Mrs. Marin told him about the giant sack that she heard Dan take down to the river, he gets uh, a friend of Odd Bunsen's who's a diver to search the river to see if there are any bodies or pottery in the river around, around Mouse House. The mustache again is constantly tingling now, but he needs proof to accuse Dan of foul play. Right. Hmm. So the show finally goes on and the living glaze is a hit. Um, <laughs> but more than one attendee observes that the glaze would be better on Joy's pots than Dan's. Hmm. Uh, Quill hears back from his diver friend who found Joy's pots with the living glaze under the jetty by Mouse House, but only in the blue and green, though. He then invites Dan back to his apartment for huh. a drink and confronts him about burning Joy's clothes, the pots in the river, and the uh, overdrawn check. Dan tries to claim that the clothes were for an effect in the kiln, the pots were rejects. But he doesn't have a good excuse for the check forgery, and he tries to distract Quill by presenting him with one of the pots in the living glaze, in a brilliant red for Quill, and one in blue for Bunsen. Hmm. Once he leaves, Quill inspects, uh, Coco, excuse me, inspects both pots and reacts very, very badly to the red. Uh, Despite admonitions from Joy, Rosemary, and the vets that cats, cats can't see color, Coco very clearly can see red. We have the red of the little book. We have the red of the pot. And hence, of course, the title of the book, The Cat the, Who exactly. Saw Red. Coco also brings Quill's attention back to that same little red book on the history of pottery, particularly the final chapter detailing some frankly less than savory techniques that cause Quill to smash the red pot and go running to Robert Mouse, who advises him to wait till morning before contacting the police. Said, un- oh. said unsavory technique... Is? Is that the Chinese used to throw the bodies of unwanted children into the kiln to turn their pottery red. Oh my god. And that night, Dan attempts to bash Quill's brains in with a rolling pin for clay. As and you, hence by the cover. the cover. you can. They actually did get the uh, get one of the murder weapon, weapons correct on this one. It's very clearly a, uh, a rolling a pin. Potter's That's rolling the cover pin. I remember from my grandmother's house. Yeah. That have, you know, harking back to episode one. But I remember that. And now it all it fits all together. It fits together. But fortunately, Dan is foiled by the cats and Rosemary's skein of yarn, which the cats have once again turned into a fiber art sculpture by stringing it throughout the apartment. Dan trips, cracks his head on the tile. Ooh. And Quill is safe once again. Dan had experimented, apparently, with Joy's cat. He later confessed this. Oh, so that's what turned it red? That's what turned the pots red, and later Joy herself. Oh, my God. So that's what got the brilliant red color in the pots. When he caught William spying on him, he actually spiked his drink with lead and then stored his body in the clay storage to use on the next round of pots. So that's how William, unfortunately... That's how William disappeared as well. 
So after all of this comes out, the ladies of Mouse House come to Quill's apartment to celebrate his not demise, and Coco shows off his typing skills with the final with the final symbols of the book being KVR, as in caviar. <laughs> Still has expensive tastes. Very much so. So one in caviar. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Now do, the 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 dear departed cat that uh, was the cause of red. What did, was did they, that cat have a name? Yes, yes. His name was Raku. Raku. Aww. Yes. He was supposed to be a brilliant, uh, a, a beautiful brown long hair. Um, Joy was very Joy was very proud. And there's a you know it's when you can tell that things are not good in the marriage. She's talking about how much she loves the cat, and the and Dan is making terrible just, jokes about it being a cat astrophe. Cat. Um, <laughs> they're cat napping. <laughs> Uh, terrible bad jokes that that make it very clear he's really not he doesn't care that his wife is not having a great time well and he's not yeah and he's not in her top three or anything uh it's not remotely no um so yes so the killer obviously is dan graham which is predicted throughout the entire book um but more of this mystery is about Quill trying to find the proof. Mm-hmm. Um, so we lose the cat, we lose Joy, we lose William, although he never actually makes it into the kiln, thank goodness. Impudent, but occasionally useful. In- occasionally useful. May you rest in peace. May you rest in peace. And so, the, of course, the, me- and the method, one of them was lead, lead poisoning. Mm-hmm. But also, God, eventually, being incinerated. Yes, Ah, it's, it's not a pretty way to go. I, and you may have mentioned this, and I was not clear on that, but do we ever meet Raku beforehand? Or is he... No, no, he's gone by the time Quill comes oh, to Mouse House. That's a shame. It is. With this thing, and of course Quill being the food writer, there's a lot, a lot of food in this. I can imagine for this one there's quite a bit of food yes. compared to other ones. But the best scene by far remains one remains the one where Quill twice tries to feed Coco and Yum Yum store-bought cat food, which he found on sale, no less. Oh, oh goodness. And they That's rebel in the most well. cat way possible. They ignore, they ignore the offered food, destroy everything else. Oh, no. Quill gets to grumpily clean up fishy fritters before Mr. Mouse takes pity on him and basically supplies him with kitchen leftovers from here on out. Fishy fritters is the brand, I'm guessing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, goodness. Leftovers from here on out and, of course, lamb and caviar. Lamb and caviar and lamb, you know, and lamb chops and vichy and, and whatever. Vichy swan, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I mean, sashimi at some point, too, I'm guessing. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. There's lots of talk about cans of red salmon, etc. Mm, well, of course, fresh and everything else in Beluga. Gotta have the best. <laughs> well, of course. As we said, this is the only award nominee of the 29 books. It, none of the series actually managed to win an award. It got nominated for things for this book. The rest of the series just managed to be really solid sellers throughout. But this is the only one that was up for any... Really, right. it seems like... May, uh, well, uh, the Edgar, as far as mysteries go, mm-hmm. is like the Academy Award. That's exactly. the Oscar. But that, this is the only one that was up for that. Only one that was ever up for ever, ever up for something. Um, and it's nice to start this renewed series with a bang. Mm-hmm. You get to see a little bit more of a development of Quill and Arch's friendship. Their childhood reminiscences, referencing their double dating Joy and Rosie back in Chicago when they were kids. And general ribbing that you really can only get away with when you've known somebody for 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. And she writes the two of them very, very well. Charlotte Root, by the way, um, until the end of the book, basically exists to disapprove of everything and ask Quiller in for crossword clues. Uh, I, I, I think that Lillian Jackson Braun clearly has a crossword addiction because this is not the first crossword aficionado we run into throughout the series. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's not the last. It is the first, but it's not the last. The first of many. The first of many. Um, and Quill, of course, always knows the most obscure terms for, you know, an 11-letter word for a type of orchid <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, her, her other big feature is she raves about her three bosses, 
who are just the most brilliant men who took who took the hash house from three restaurants to 30 blah 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 <laughs> and then she actually finds out that they're behind a smear campaign for a rival restaurant at which point she resigns in high dudgeon and turns them into the police in high dudgeon now see i read your notes on this and i saw that originally as dungeon <laughs> and i thought something else was going on in the hash house so <laughs> Moving on from that. So Charlotte Roop now... Uh, so Charlotte Roop actually does get some redeeming qualities. She she is the reason that the that the people who own the hash house go to jail. And mm. she there's a hilarious moment at that very end where all the ladies are gathered in Quill's apartment where she storms in and she says, Mr. Quiller and I need something strong. I I need a sherry. <laughs> Thank you, Niles and Fraser. Yes, sherry, it's... what an intriguing idea. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, so Charlotte, this is the only time we see her, unfortunately. Is that correct? She pops in and out. I mean, there's... Oh, good. When... Well, this is the only book we see her in. I see. Yeah. Um, But she pops in and out throughout the story when Hixie's coming out of Quilleran's apartment, when Mm. Rosemary's coming out of Quilleran's apartment, because that's apparently become a thing now. (laughs) Um, Other fun moments. There are some really wonderful, nasty cracks about the Fluxion's food editor. Um, She can't boil an egg, but she puts out the best recipe page in the country. (laughs) And when Arch calls to tell Quill that he needs to go judge this cake contest, Quill, of course, asks, well, why can't the food editor do it? And Arch responds, she's in the hospital. Quill says, what, been eating her own cooking? Hey-o. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of Rosemary, by the way, mm-hmm. she's a more appealing partner for Quill. She's of his own age bracket. She's calm. But the cats aren't fans. And to be fair, after the after the the nicer gesture with the yarn, she then thinks a good way to bond is by trying to force feed the cats vitamins. We anyway, if you've ever owned a cat, you know that force that's, feeding them anything. Yeah, is it's not not going to new. They they are not amused, and they get locked in the bathroom when they fail to cooperate. So obviously, they associate her with getting locked in the bathroom. They're not fans. No, that's going to be yeah, not going to do it. She also, by the way, doesn't believe Quill about Coco's extra sensory abilities and insists that it probably was Yum Yum who strung the, uh, who, who strung the, uh, the string sculpture. They, Yum Yum may have helped, but it was Coco's So idea. clearly uh, she has a favorite as far as the two cats. She just happens to believe that, women, that it's, it's a more female appropriate occupation to play with yarn than male. I see. Yeah, it's not <laughs> not so good. Um, by the way, the, the famous murder-suicide that's associated with Mouse House in its former incarnation as the Penniman Pottery mm-hmm. is revealed by Inga Berry, a teacher at the Penniman School of Art. Uh, Inga Berry. It's a great name. You, sa- you saved that nugget for the debrief. I, I love did, it. I did. Inga um, Berry. Inga Berry. <laughs> and so Quill invites Inga Berry to Dan's show. Inga teaches pottery at the Penniman Pottery and used to live at the Penniman Pottery when it was all artist and when this whole murder-suicide thing happened. Because she's the one who reveals that, you know, that peephole that was in Coleran's apartment? Mm-hmm. It used to be- that apartment used to belong to old Mr. Pennyman, who had a crush on a potter named Helen Hake, who was loved by a sculptor named Mortimer Mellon. Clearly, LBJ loves this, her alliteration. Yeah, this alliteration, more, uh, Wow. Penniman gets jealous. Mortimer ends up in the river, followed by a then by a discovered to be pregnant Helen. Mm. It's not a good look for the Penniman family, so they abandon the pottery. The Fluxion, of course, keeps bringing it up, and then they all hate the Fluxion. Um, <laughs> so much is explained. So much history. Exactly. <laughs> this also, by the way, showcases LBJ's poetic skills. And remember, she started off writing sports poetry for the Detroit Press, mm-hmm. um, and she actually wrote a limerick about the scandal that Hixie gets to recite. Like I said, Hixie is fun. Um, a like potty young sculptor, Mort Mellon, fell in love with a potress named Helen. But the pottery gods frowned, and he promptly got drowned. And who pushed him, the potters ain't telling. 
I like that. Limericks this. actually. Are, this is the first limerick, but there are so many more throughout this throughout this series. Um, Quill later at one point sponsors a limerick writing contest, so we'll get to those <laughs> and we'll read some of them that are very fun. On the road um, to Alpha Centauri, I stopped and had a pint at the brewery. Anyway. I, you know, it's it's very clear that she's she's a very practiced poet mm-hmm. because these things that she comes up with are not easy, and she she manages to put them in the voices of her characters, and she manages to make very tight poetic lines. And it doesn't really feel for, it doesn't feel forced anything from what it sounds like. It seems like you said very natural flowing and it's exactly. Very, you know, a slightly a slightly naughty limerick is exactly Hixie's style, um, <laughs> whereas we might have someone like Charlotte or Rosemary recite a more um, refined uh, poetic statement. More stand, but, more of a stanza, more of a classic. Maybe it, yeah, sonnet something or whatnot. something more elegant than than a limerick. <laughs> so, with a mystery for this, everything points to Dan right from the start. There is there you is mentioned n- that it was very uh, yeah, it's very it, obvious. It, that it's he's... very clear that he that, that there is something nefarious going on, and he's behind it. Um, he definitely comes across with that smug "I'm too smart, you're never going to catch me" attitude. Mm, um, which we we and we love it whenever, and especially in going back to the type of bad guys Columbo would run exactly. into with that. It's always so satisfying to see when they fall. Exactly. So I give this um, as far as the paw ratings go. Yeah, I give this three paws. It's very solid. So, the character, yeah, okay. the characters are interesting, and even though all the signs point to the culprit from the beginning, it's really fun to see how Quill manages mm-hmm. to figure this out and find proof so that people will listen to him. Um, Sometimes this, some of those stories can be very can be I think the most satisfying. You already know what's going to happen, but how it gets there mm-hmm. that can always be a very interesting way, and that could be the most fun of it all. So. Yeah, and this book really That's kind fun. of establishes that not everybody believes Quill about Coco's extrasensory uh, skills, hmm. um, particularly Rosemary, um, particularly Mister Mouse. Arch <laughs> doesn't believe it. There is, you know. Quill is learning that he needs to follow his own instincts and Coco's instincts if he wants to solve these mysteries that he keeps being presented with. Got to do it for himself. Got to do it for himself. And that's that's very much on on brand for a cozy mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not always believed and you have to and, and he keeps struggling to make sure that finally he gets enough proof that everyone has to believe him. Even if in later books, there's very clear points where he doesn't tell people that Coco helped him. <laughs> he realizes that not everybody's going to buy it, so well, you know what? He doesn't. He doesn't push the issue. Basically, saying he's got a magical cat. I'm sure not everyone is going to believe him or go along with it because that, you know, the <laughs> that would probably sound a little ridiculous to anybody. I'm yeah, sure. who would believe him? It's like my cat told me that the my cat told me that the Potter's <laughs> been throwing his wife into the kiln. Okay, sir, that you that That's makes wonderful. you sound completely and utterly nuts. Well, We're not going to believe you. Let's just type this up on my imaginary typewriter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, oh, so so three stars. This is, in the previous one, you gave it only two. I really gave it only two. So this two. is a, certainly a step up. It is. You know, like you said, the cat who turned on and off is kind of a filler. Mm-hmm. It introduces us to some characters that will come that will come back and be important later. So does this book, but it does it in a very, very different way. Versus, um, the, versus the cat who turned on and off, which is just kind of world building. Mm-hmm. This one is laying the groundwork for where we're about to go. Because in the next book, we're about to take a huge leap. And without the groundwork that we've laid here at Mouse House, um, we wouldn't make the leap as elegantly to where we're about to end up in the next one. Well, and laying the ground, it's it's also establishing more of Quill as a character. And also, of course, the two cats as characters of as course. well, too. And fleshing out more of their characteristics. Exactly. Interesting. That's great. So now that, uh, I, well, any final thoughts on the cat who saw red? 
It's one of the more horrific crimes. I mean, I, I, I think I say that every time because, you know, we're not, even from the start, we're talking about some not so nice these are not cozy deaths. We've, we've got stabbings and no. sh- stabbings and shootings and falling downstairs. The impalement and um, and but even the, even compared to that, there's something just squicky about somebody who decides that the best way to get rid of his competition, who happens to be his wife, is to shove her into the kiln and then use her as part of his art. And then that because yeah, it was becoming she becomes the art. Yeah, oh, it's, just it's, it, it, it's it's very much got, you know, serial killer written all over it. It's very Fargo yeah. in that regard. And the original, yeah, it's... Uh. It's, it's so that's yeah for a cozy mystery that definitely it's uh, unpleasant. gives a bit of the uh, a bit of the chills up the spine. Absolutely. What is the next book in the series that we're going to be uh, reading? So our next book is going to be the cat who played Brahms, which is where we finally get to see beautiful pickaxe four hundred miles north of everywhere. Pickaxe, here we go. Been All waiting right. for this. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for listening to the cat who did a podcast, and join us next time for the cat who played Brahms. Well, thank you very much. I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry, and I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry, and until next time. Happy sleuthing.